0: following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Would you uh, please open your Bibles and turn to First Corinthians uh, chapter 15. you are going to be preaching from that this morning. And uh, if you're using the Bible that's under the seat in front of you, it's found on page 961 in that Bible. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So, without question, uh, Easter is uh, the most important day on the Christian calendar. It marks the occasion when our Lord Jesus Christ, um, after having lived a perfectly sinless life, traded his righteousness for our sinfulness by dying on the cross as payment for our sins. And then three days later, after being buried, he rose again from the dead, according to the scriptures. Well, he not only paid for our sins by his death, he defeated death itself, by rising again in his own renewed body, with the leftover nail marks and the uh, the hole in his side, uh, as a reminder of the price that he paid to redeem us, and then he appeared to his disciples and to many others, and then ascended visibly from the earth to sit at God's right hand. It is an awesome, awesome story. Unfortunately, it doesn't always seem that Easter is our most important holiday, right? We spend five or six weeks celebrating a largely secularized advent, uh, preparing for Christmas, fretting over presents, uh, baking cookies, watching Hallmark Channel, um, you know, all these things, attending uh, parties, uh, and otherwise engaging in a lot of sentimental activities. Uh, all of which, by the way, I will say, I engage in. I, uh, well, maybe not the Hallmark movies so much, but... Um, <laughs> But, you know, there's nothing wrong inherently with any of those things, right? Um, So, but it's undeniable that we don't do anything that comes close to that kind of activity and level of celebration at Easter. Uh, So, but keeping it in perspective, Jesus did not die for our sins uh, when he was born, okay? He wasn't buried behind the manger, and he didn't rise again from Bethlehem. Okay. The second person of the Trinity coming to earth as Emmanuel, God with us, uh, was a big deal to be sure. But it is his death, resurrection, and ascension that makes us Christians and creates his church. Well, the early church certainly understood the importance of Jesus' resurrection. They didn't risk and sometimes forfeit their lives by telling the Sadducees and the Pharisees or the Romans or the Ephesians or the Corinthians, for that matter, uh, about the birth of Christ They were ostracized, beaten, they were stoned and killed because of their witness to the resurrection. It was truly a big deal. Well, back in October last year, I preached on this subject, specifically 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but I took a much larger hunk of that, right? We did verses 12 through 58. And I'm sure all of you hung on every word that was spoken. And you've probably gone back and listened to that sermon several times since then. Uh, But for the sake of you who are new, I'm going to recap, okay? So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul starts out in verse 12 with a pretty lengthy explanation of the importance of Jesus' resurrection. How it provides hope for this life and for the life to come. And how without the resurrection, our faith is futile. It's meaningless. And we're still dead in our sins. He then goes on to assert that we will have physical bodies after our resurrection, but they will be new bodies and will be imperishable and glorious, and that we will bear the image of the man of heaven. This is amazing. Well, this morning, I want to hone in on some verses that I only briefly touched on last time. Uh, in the hopes of teasing out a little more of what Paul is trying to teach us in this passage. So let's read 1 Corinthians 15 and just verses 20 through 28 together. And while we're reading, let's keep an eye out for three particular themes, which I'll expound on some more. One is the theme of first fruits, the second is the victorious battle, and the third is God will be all in all. Would you stand now for the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, and active word? starting at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man uh, uh, came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Amen. Maybe seated, and I'll open this up with some prayer. Uh, Father, I just pray again as Chris had just prayed, Lord, that you would help me to get out of the way so that your word would go forth in faith. And uh, Lord, that you would give us your spirit to hear your word and to obey it and to be encouraged by it. And I pray, God, that anything that I say that might be wrong or inaccurate, Lord, would be erased from our memories and that you would uh, reign supreme in the midst of this time. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, in my sermon in October, I briefly discussed the notion of Jesus being the first fruits. Okay, but let me expound on it a little bit uh, in greater detail here. Notice in verses 20 through 23 in what we just read that Paul refers to the risen Christ as the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Well, this idea of firstfruits goes back to the feasts that were established in Leviticus chapter 23, Passover and the, uh, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then 50 days later, the Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. Well, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread took place together when the barley harvest was just coming in, uh, uh, starting to come in, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a festival in which the first fruits, the best and the first and best part of the barley harvest, were offered to Yahweh. Then, 50 days after the Pente- after Pentecost, uh, or Fifty days later was the Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks. So incidentally, that's where the term Pentecost comes from, right? It's, penta means five. So the Pentagon is a five-sided building up in Arlington. Uh, Pentatonix is a five-member a cappella group. Uh, Pentecost is 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Literally, it's seven Sabbaths plus one day. Seven times seven is 49, plus the one day is 50. Uh, also, it came to be called the Feast of Weeks uh, because it was seven weeks after uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Well, anyway, Pentecost is the festival in which another first fruits offering was made. In this case, it was the wheat harvest. In both cases, the first fruits offering anticipated the greater harvest yet to come. Uh, In this case, uh, so again, the the first fruits offerings anticipated the greatest greatest harvest yet to come. So this is important as we uh, move forward. In addition, the two festivals commemorated specific historical events in Israel's life. Passover, of course, represented Israel's exodus out of slavery in Egypt, while Pentecost represented their arrival at Mount Sinai about seven weeks later, where they received God's commandments. And these two seminal events were woven together with the festivals. God freed Israel from bondage in Egypt and and gave them the law, thus enabling Israel to inherit the land promised to them and that the land itself would be fruitful. In the Jewish mind, these ideas were inextricably linked. Of course, Paul is writing to Gentile believers here in this letter, but the fact that he's making this connection in reference to Christ's resurrection indicates that the Corinthian church knew enough Jewish history to understand that link, and now hopefully you do too. And so Paul applies this first fruits image to Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have died or fallen asleep. Now, note, he isn't the only fruits. He's the first fruits, meaning there will be many more to come, just as the first fruits offerings anticipated many more sheaves of barley or wheat yet to come. Well, Jesus' death coincided with Passover, as we know the sacrifice of the spotless lamb by his shed blood in order that the angel of death may pass over those on whom the blood was applied. This showed the great slave masters sin and death were defeated when Jesus died during Passover and rose again three days later. And incidentally, I'll just note that this continues to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when 50 days after Christ's resurrection, the apostles in that room were the first fruits of those who received the Holy Spirit. But that's outside the scope of today's sermon. That's a little freebie for you. You can go back and study yourself. Uh, So, back to 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. Paul doesn't quite spell it out, but by implication, Adam is the first fruits of sin and death, contrasted with Jesus as the first fruits of the resurrection and life. And you'll often hear in theology the idea of federal headship. Okay, and this is kind of where that idea comes from. We have a federal form of government. We have People who represent us in Congress. Well, Adam was our federal head or representative in sin and death. And therefore, we are all guilty of sin, which is rebellion against the holy, perfect God. And therefore, deserve death. But praise God, Jesus was our federal head or representative on the cross. And therefore, we who are in him are represented by him. And therefore, seen as righteous by that same holy, perfect God. Adam delivered death to mankind, but Jesus delivered mankind from death. So let's take a look at the second theme in this passage, the victorious battle. Paul kind of shifts gears in verses 24 to 28. He escalates the imagery as if the resurrection of Christ and then our own resurrection isn't quite enough, right? So he described a risen Christ who destroys every rule and every authority and every power and then delivers this new kingdom where every enemy is vanquished to his father in heaven. What might that look like today to have every rule, authority, and power destroyed? If he comes back today, won't it be glorious to see Vladimir Putin get his due? But so will Volodymyr Zelensky and Joe Biden and possibly Glenn Youngkin and win some Sears. Who knows? Now, Paul does state Uh, Paul does state that all God's enemies will be put under Christ's feet. So not every person in authority will be destroyed, but then uh, they will all be properly submitted to Christ. Remember, authority is something that God instilled in the creation himself, in the created order, but it is also to be submitted to him. Psalm 8.6 says, You have given him, meaning mankind, dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. This certainly points to Christ's rule and reign. For those who shake their fists at God and rule in their own selfish way, it will not be a pretty sight. Listen to one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 2. Turn to it here. And most of you probably know this, but <clears throat> why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now this fact of Christ crushing his enemies and subduing all authorities under his feet underscores a theology of new creation. Every rule, every authority, every power means every. There is no power in the entire cosmos that will not come under God's rule, delivered by our great king Jesus. Even death itself will give up its power. Think about the things that you regard as permanent features in, a, in our fallen world, Right? wars and chaos, uh, disjointedness, decay, hatred, death, all of these will be transformed by Jesus. Death is the last enemy. It is not a normal or natural part of life and it is not good. God did not create death in the garden and call it good like he did everything else he created. Death is the result of sin and therefore death must be defeated If God, the giver and sustainer of life, is to be honored as the ultimate true Lord of the world. We hear scientists all the time talking about how the universe is going to collapse on itself or, you know, environmentalists that think that we're just going to wreck everything and the whole world's going to fall apart, right? Well, hear what the gospel of Jesus Christ says. What God did for Jesus at Easter, he will do for those who belong to Christ and for the entire cosmos. And this leads us to our final theme uh, in this passage, that God will be all in all. The only exception to all rule, authorities, and powers being subjected to Christ, as Paul stresses in verse 27 in our reading, is that God the Father is not in subjection under Jesus' feet. Here's what it says. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted, and not accepted, ACC, it's accepted, like he's accepted, he's, he's the exception to the rule, He is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. So in other words, God puts all things in subjection under him. And therefore, he cannot be in subjection under his son, Jesus. They are two coexisting persons of the Trinity, but they are distinct and they have different roles and order of prominence. Look at verse 28. Paul says, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. Okay, well this is somewhat convoluted in the English, but it's actually quite clear. Actually, Jesus was always subject to the Father, right? Even though he is part of the Trinity. He regularly prayed to the Father. Uh, He told his audiences that the very food he ate was to do the will of the Father. He asked the Father to remove the cup of his wrath from him and then submitted again saying, not my will, but yours be done. But in this final act of Jesus's When he presents the Father with his kingdom, it will be manifestly clear to all that God the Father is the ultimate God, that God may be all in all. Jesus, while being fully God, was also fully human, a creature born on earth to a woman who faced every temptation imaginable. This will become obvious to all when he delivers up the kingdom to his Father. It will be divinely glorious. Our salvation will appear altogether divine, which it is, and God alone will have the glory of it. Jesus' human nature was employed in the work of our redemption, but God was all in all in it. It is all God's doing, and he will be unequivocally recognized as all in all. In the end, God intends to fill all creation with his own presence and love. Isaiah actually gives us a glimpse of this in chapter 11 of his book. Isaiah 11.9 says the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.14 also says, almost identically, "For for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Think about that for a moment. How can the waters cover the sea? The waters are the sea. It seems that Isaiah and Habakkuk are both suggesting that God intends to flood the universe with himself. To quote one theologian, we might even suggest that the world is beautiful, not just because it hauntingly reminds us of its creator, but also because it is pointing forward. It is designed to be filled, flooded, drenched in God as a chalice is beautiful, not least because of what we know it is designed to contain. Or as a violin is beautiful, not least because we know the music of which it is capable. The world is created good, but it's incomplete. When all the forces of rebellion and fist shaking at God are crushed, creation will respond freely and gladly to the love of its creator. God will fill it with himself. And what a glorious day that will be. Well, this pretty much wraps up our exposition of this portion of First Corinthians 15. Remember the main three points that we discussed, the first fruits, the victorious battle, and God will be all in all. But this last per- portion about God being all in all leaves me a little hungry to know a little bit more, as Scripture often does. This notion of a kingdom purchased for God, which is flooded with the knowledge of the glory of Lord as the waters cover the sea, And where God's love freely flows throughout his good creation just kind of gives me a little bit of an itch. You know, you get that right in the back of your, in the middle of your back, you can't quite reach, okay? This is just begging to be scratched for me. So what else does God's word say about this? turns out, scripture says a lot about this. But I'd like to highlight uh, a couple of chapters in Revelation, uh, chapters 21 and 22. Before we go on, I want to acknowledge that scripture does in some places seem to speak of the earth being destroyed and God starting over. Okay, Hebrews 1:11 through 12, which quotes Psalm 102, says the earth and the heavens will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment. They will all be changed. And later, the author of Hebrews tells us that God has promised to once more shake the heavens and the earth to remove all the things that can be shaken so that the only thing that's left are the things that cannot be shaken. In 2 Peter 3.10, the apostle says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed or burned up. And there are other passages as well. However, taken with the rest of scripture and knowing the character of God, mostly that he is a redeemer... It's hard for me to believe that God would entirely annihilate his good creation. This would seem to give Satan uh, the win and the last word, right? By by scrapping all that he made simply because Satan had ruined it all. This is also quite consistent with everything we learned about the resurrection of Christ and our promised resurrection. He didn't scrap Jesus' body and give him a whole new one. He simply renewed what was already there. He even, as I said earlier, left the nail scars and the hole in his side. And we've looked at several passages clearly indicating that our bodies will be likewise redeemed and renewed at the final resurrection. So this indicates that our physical resurrected bodies will once again be very good in God's sight and they will function in such a way as to fulfill the plan that God had designed when he put us here. And with that, in our remaining time this morning, let's skim through chapters 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation. I recommend you open your Bibles and follow along And if you want to be hugely encouraged, I recommend you read and and meditate on these passages, these couple of chapters throughout the week. And really, if you want to be hugely encouraged, read the whole book of Revelation. It is a wonderful book. Uh, Don't be scared by it. uh, It was written as a letter to believers, and we're believers, so we should be reading it. So the author of Revelation, the Apostle John, starts chapter 21 by stating that he saw a new heaven and a new earth. And here's where some can legitimately argue that God will destroy the earth and remake it. Because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Well, then there's the holy city coming down to earth from heaven, like a bride adorned for her husband. And there's this loud voice proclaiming, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Does this sound familiar? Emmanuel, God with us. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And John goes on to describe the physical features of the new Jerusalem with its walls and dimensions of the gates and how it will be decorated. In chapter 22, John sees a river, a street, a tree yielding 12 kinds of fruit, each each in its own season. And there's a throne and servants and great light. These are all physical things that he's describing. Now, I confess that the book of Revelation is full of symbolism. But there's no compelling reason to say that these expressions are merely symbolic without any literal reference. I mean, God made a donkey talk to a man. He literally stopped the rotation of the earth for a day so Joshua could win a battle. And he actually backed up the rotation of the earth in another instance for the sake of a king who is hard-hearted and he wanted to be assigned to him. God created sloths and bioluminescent algae and mole crickets, and fish that only live in a little puddle that's mostly dry in the middle of, the, of Death Valley. Why would we think that God would not renew heaven and earth and fill it with these wonderful things that John describes? And as theologian Wayne Grudem asks in his great reference Bible doctrine, are symbolic banquets and symbolic wine and symbolic rivers and trees somehow superior to real banquets and real wine and real rivers and trees in God's eternal plan? Well, how did we get here to all this discussion about this new heaven and new earth? It's Easter, and we're supposed to be talking about Jesus' resurrection. For some of us, perhaps, at least the Easter bunny. Well, we got here with the resurrection of Jesus as our starting point. In that, uh, and then uh, examining what Paul says about this in his first letter to the Corinthian church. In that dissertation, Paul discusses Jesus as the first fruits of more resurrections to come, namely, ours And then he relates it to Jesus' victorious battle with all God's enemies and the turning over of his kingdom to his Father in heaven. And finally, the Father is universally recognized as all in all, filling the cosmos in a new way with his presence and power and love. Well, John's book of Revelation then describes something of what we can expect to see. Well, so what? This is all very interesting, maybe even inspiring, But how should this impact our lives today? I mean, does the fact of Jesus' resurrection and the promise of ours and the renewal of heaven and earth have any bearing on our sanctification, the working out of our salvation in this world? Well, the last time I spoke on this subject, back in October, I gave you three specific applications for followers of Jesus Christ, which were taken straight from Scripture in the context of resurrection and its implications. One was consider yourself dead to sin. The second was seek the things that are above. And third, be steadfast in the Lord's work. Well, for today, I'd like to repeat one of those and then add two more, one of which is for those who are not followers of Jesus Christ. So, number one, be steadfast in the Lord's work. Be steadfast in the Lord's work. After everything Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58 says this Therefore, meaning everything I just said, therefore, my beloved brothers, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. For the very reason that Christ was raised from the dead, and we will be too, we should be steadfast in his work. It should empower and incentivize us to be faithful to tend the garden in which he has placed us. Wayne Grudem says of this, everything we do to bring people into the kingdom and build them up will indeed have eternal significance because we shall all be raised on the day when Christ returns and we shall live with him forever. So be steadfast in the Lord's work. Number two, store up treasures in heaven rather than earth. Store up treasures in heaven rather than on earth. Whether the earth and the cosmos will be burned up and replaced, or themselves resurrected, the earth in its present form today is certainly temporary. Jesus tells us in Matthew six nineteen through 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." See, either way, things on earth today are subject to decay and destruction and thievery. But in heaven, which will one day be joined back to earth, these things are not subject to these facets of the fallen cosmos. A corollary to this is to examine where your heart is, because Jesus says that the location of our treasures reveals our hearts. So store up treasures in heaven rather than on earth. And thirdly, if you are not submitted to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior... Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Revelation twenty-two fourteen through 15 makes a very clear promise after everything that is described about the new heaven and new earth in chapters 21 and 22. He says this, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. In this context, washing your robes is a reference to trusting in Christ's sacrifice for your sins. As I stated back at the beginning, it is an exchange of his righteousness for your sinfulness. This means that you would then have the right to the tree of life, which mankind is naturally barred from because of Adam's sin. Remember that whole representative thing? Adam's sin, he represented us, and in that sin, we are barred from the tree of life. But thanks be to God, because Christ also represented us on the cross. We who belong to him are, have a right to the tree of life. So contrasting those with clean robes under Christ are sinners who are barred from the city, the new Jerusalem. If you do not want to be barred from the city, but be welcomed to the tree of life that is inside the city, then you must repent or turn from your sin and believe the gospel, the good news of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross for you. And then follow him the rest of your life. Please talk to me or to Jordan or Chris after this service about this, if if this concerns you, we would love to talk to you. And so to summarize, be steadfast in the Lord's work, store up treasures in heaven and repent and believe the gospel. In the meantime, we wait with all creation on tiptoe with eager expectation of Christ's return when that resurrection life and power fills it completely with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Lord God, we do wait with eager longing and anticipation for your son's return. Thank you that in the meantime we have an empty tomb as evidence of his bodily resurrection, which is proof of the death blow dealt to death. Thank you for pointing us to our own resurrection, the renewal of all things and the final consummation between heaven and earth. Before the breath there in the tomb, before our joy sprang from the womb, you saw a day that's coming soon. When the sun will stand on the mount again with an army of angels at his command. And the earth will split like the hull of a seed wherever Jesus plants his feet. And up from the earth, the dead will rise like spring trees clothed in petals of white, singing the song of the radiant bride. And we will always be with the Lord. Grant us to be steadfast and immovable while we wait on tiptoe, faithfully working to fulfill your plan of redemption here on earth, both to point to the greater reality of ultimate redemption and for your great glory. Help us to examine our hearts and store up our treasures in heaven and not on earth. And grant repentance, O God, and faith to anyone here in need of that, for it is your work from start to finish. In the name of your Son and Savior, and our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.